It's an intense joy to be able to be here with you all and an immense honor to be invited to give the Ryan Lectures this year. It's a particular honor for me to be in this citadel of holiness, Methodism, and of evangelical faith, coming from Aberdeen, where every single stained glass window uh, seems to celebrate the Scottish Episcopalian missionary to America, Seabury, who hailed from our city and was consecrated there. I feel rather proud to be in this place and somewhat satisfied to be in a place that honors a chief shepherd of souls who was sent here a good few weeks before the Scottish Episcopalians caught up. <laughs> I, I'm of the generation of people for whom the film Back to the Future was deeply impressive. If you haven't seen any of those films, then shame on you all, and you really need to go and watch them. Shame on you for ignoring the third biggest grossing box office hit of 1985 and a 1980s <laughs> cinematic classic. But to give you a very quick synopsis uh, of Back to the Future, it's basically a story that involves Marty McFly and the Doc inventing a time machine where they travel back and forth in time seeing the effects of changes in the past upon the present and upon the future, usually in favor of the mild-mannered and fundamentally decent McFly family. I think that sometimes when we think about what it means for us to be apostolic in the church, our authenticity through our connection to the faith and mission of Jesus Christ, which was entrusted to those who met him in his resurrection, very often when we think about that, I think we find ourselves thinking a little bit like Marty McFly and the Doc from Back to the Future. Everything was set in the past to move in a particular direction. There might have been multiple possible different presents and futures, but we're determined there is a causative relationship from the things that have happened in the past that shape our present. And so as a result of that, usually when we think about the church in this way, we go for one of two possible options. The first option is the option that I think of as the venerable Gheorghe option, for those of you who've ever read Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. Gheorghe summarizes the role of theology in the church with the following words. There is no such thing as progress in knowledge, only sublime and perpetual repetition. The second option is the option that is unquestioningly modern. If the first option is an option that understands as being shaped by our past, the second option understands as being shaped by our present. The modern is the one that believes that the wisdom of the past can never fully stand up to the insights of the modo, of the just now. But what intrigues me about these two options is that both of them work with back to the future logic. On the first account, tradition, the past, is the key to shaping the present and the future. On the second account, it is the present. We ourselves, as the inheritors of the apostolic tradition, who are there shaping the future with multiple different options that we are going for. In the second account, context is everything. And on its altar, we sacrifice tradition. By the first account, History is everything, and we can ignore the contingencies and contemporaneities of our present life. 
But within the church, we confess Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, but also forever. We confess Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word of the constant and faithful God, who has died, is risen, and will come again in glory, who is already the future and the telos of our redeeming grace, and who is breaking in with his kingdom into the present in the here and now, the God who already lies ahead of us in our future, controlling our present by the future into which he calls us his people. We confess the God who is our eternal future, always ahead of us, giving us a deposit, giving us a seal, giving us a foretaste of the future that God desires for all creation in the here and now. The God who determines our present by God's future. For this reason, I've entitled my lectures The Future of Our Apostolic Past. Part one today will consider the prophetic ministry of Christ, and part two tomorrow, what that might mean for the way that we think about apostolicity in the life of the church. And after that introduction, I want to say this first of all today. The prophetic office of Christ is grounded in the eternal constancy of the ever-living God. In a theological context in which we are left, it seems to me crudely, with either the option of a past concretization of an apostolic deposit like a stone that we hold on to, or a present personalization and contextualization of it that reshapes it like a piece of clay in every generation, it seems to me to be that it is wise to be reminded of the constant aliveness of the living God. It is this which is, to my mind, the foundation of Jesus Christ's prophetic address to creation in this and in every age. God should neither be confused with some kind of museum piece, some untouched tablets of stone collecting dust in a cabinet observed from afar, nor should God ever be confused with an ever-changing zeitgeist of this and every past or present future. God is the living one, the one who is alive in his constancy and constant in his aliveness, the one who has presence before, with, and over all time and all space. His word His word is the eternal word. But the problem that we have sometimes when we say that is that we confuse eternity with timelessness. Or we think that the past determines everything. Eternity is everlastingness. That isn't sufficient to talk about God. Rather, I think I'd want to say that God's eternity is to time what God's omnipresence is to space. God's eternity is the basis of, the condition for, the presence to, and the telos of time. Now, the next minute or so is the most technical part of the sort of 35 minutes or so in which I'm going to be speaking to you. 
And here I'm going to be very, um, I'm going to have to confess that I'm very indebted to Boethius, who understands eternity as the complete, simultaneous, and perfect possession of unending or boundless life. God holds time perfectly and completely in God's boundless existence. God is at every moment of God's aliveness, present to every single moment of time, without its changing or its passing form. One way that I sometimes speak to my students about this, and which might be helpful as an image, is to consider the idea of God's eternity as being a little bit akin to an unending piano keyboard, where every single key represents every moment in space-time that ever has been or will be. Those of us who live in time, we play each moment sequentially, one by one by one by one. But God, in God's eternity, God plays every single note in each one of the notes' integrities and particularities and distinctiveness. God plays every note all at once. And God is there eternally before the keyboard begins and eternally after it ends. God is co-present to every moment of time already, once and perfectly. Just as God's eternity is the basis, the origins of our time, so God's eternity is its end point and its telos. This means that in God's eternal life, Creation and redemption are both perfectly possessed all at once simultaneously. And why this is important is that we might want to say, therefore, that it's not just that God redeems because God has created. It is equally true to say that God creates because God desires to redeem. There is as much retroactivity about God's being as proactivity. God's future determines God's past as much as God's past determines God's future. Now, this is a highly complex set of arguments and ideas that warrants many, many lectures, but it's important in terms of what I want to say about the prophetic encounter that we can have with Christ and apostolicity. Since in saying that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we are saying that Jesus is already yesterday, that which he will be in the future, and that which he is in the future, he is already yesterday. He was, after all, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. The reason I'm saying all of this is because I want to emphasize that God, the alive God, is eternally the God who is ahead of us and before us, into whose future we move as he reaches to us from that future that he desires for us into our present. This doesn't involve changing God. It's not about passability or mutability. I can't go along with Jürgen Moltmann, I'm afraid, on that. Rather, it's an account of the eternity of God which precedes, accompanies, and completes time all at once. This is the supreme, perfect aliveness of the living God 
who is the basis of our faith, the constancy of the God who unveils God's constant self evermore in the contingencies and differences and particularities of the cultures and societies and contexts in which we live. The Cappadocians wisely recognize this in their idea of epictesis, that God's ever-living life is something so boundless that we need an ending time to journey ever deeper into it. Now, I'm always nervous talking biblical exegesis as a systematician in front of Bible scholars. My own view is that systematics is like the parasite discipline of all academic theology, because we basically take everybody else's insights and then play with it in a less expert way. (laughs) But this idea of divine life is found, I think, in the account of Moses' encounter with the angel of the Lord in the burning bush that we heard read to us a few moments ago. I should tell you, by the way, that a good friend of mine, about 15 years or so, managed to go to the monastery in St. Catharines in Egypt where it is believed by tradition this event took place and where the bush is meant to be preserved. And knowing that I would be fascinated by this, he sent me an email with a photograph of the bush on it. And what had me in stitches bent over laughing was that this bush is so precious to the monastery, such a, a holy site, that in order to preserve it from any danger, what was right next to it? A fire extinguisher. just in case God turns up again. (laughs) But this passage is a really important passage for for lots of reasons. The one who calls Moses is described as the angel of the Lord, but the passage moves from that language to speaking of this one as Yahweh himself. And Christian tradition has suggested that this is a pre-incarnate presence, encounter with Christ that Moses is having. What intrigues me about this encounter, though, is the way that time operates in it in relation to God's being. God starts off by announcing that he is the God of their past. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we would want to say Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. But he then goes on to speak in a way which is not just past-orientated, but which is causative and future-orientated in relation to bringing people out of Egypt, in relation to liberating people from their slavery, in relation to a desire for relationship and encounter with his people, and in relation to the future that God has for them. In effect, it always seems to me that when Moses asks God's name and God replies, what he's saying is, just watch this space and you'll learn who I am. Want to know who I am? See what I'm about to do. And to cap it all off, When Moses asks God's name, God says to Moses, Ea, Asha, Ea, I am that I am. Except I'm sure that we all know as good Bible scholars, it doesn't really mean that. We feel the effect today of the translation of the Hebrew into the Septuagint of the Greek, Ego, Amy, Ho, On, and then the translation of that into the Vulgate, uh, Ego, Sum, Qui, Sum. But Hebrew is far more dynamic than that. Eya Asha Eya means, I will be what I will be. I will cause to be what I will cause to be, as much as it means I am that I am. And indeed, it can mean any combination of those things. I am what I will be. I will be what I cause to be. I will cause to be what I am. I am what I will cause to be, and so on and so forth. This is 
a far more complicated situation that God presents us with than the space-time continuum in Back to the Future. God is the God of our past, but is also the God of our present and the God of our future all at once. And we, as his people, are called back in time and space, time and time and time again. We are called back to God's future. The resurrection, as we heard in that beautiful prayer before, is an inbreaking of the future of God into our present. When God reveals God's name, including that futurist aspect, he ends it almost like the ending of a fairy story with forever and ever and ever. Forever and ever and ever, God will be who God will be. Eternally our future. I think this is the context in which it begins to make sense of what it means to speak of Jesus' prophetic ministry, as the one who anticipates that future in his resurrection, proclaims it and teaches it, and also crucially as the one who encounters us. Encounter is a constant trope with the prophets. They encounter God, just as Moses does here, turning aside to him. God is the God who constantly leads us into God's future, the future and eternity to which God is already fully present. We encounter the one who was slain before the foundation of the earth and reaches us with redeeming grace from the future he desires for all of creation. The one who is before Abraham was. The one who proleptically comes to us from the future he desires for us in the here and now. And so I want to say this secondly. The eternal God is known to us in encounter with Jesus Christ in his prophetic ministry. The eternal God is known to us in encounter with Jesus Christ in his prophetic ministry. When we speak of the eternal constancy of God as the grounds of Christ's living prophetic office, We do so understanding that we can only know of the eternal aliveness of God through the encounter that we have with Jesus Christ. We cannot separate in Christian theology, despite certain scholastic propensities to do so, the order of knowing from the order of being, because our faith is not just based on revelation, it is based on the self-revelation of the living God. Crucially, in terms of apostolicity, we need to consider the teachings of Christ as the teachings of the ever-living prophet, who is the grounds and ends of all prophecy that takes place within Scripture. I actually think the New Testament makes great efforts in this way, to present Jesus as the one who is the foretold successor of Moses. Consider the start of the Gospels and the imagery that's used at the start of them, really making plain the relationship between wilderness and 40 days and so on and so forth in relation to who Moses is, or consider the words of the epistle to the Hebrews. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. This prophetic ministry is one which enables encounter with God through God's word and has done so in the pre-incarnate life in the nativity, in the incarnation, and in the resurrection. Prenatally, 
before his birth. Jesus is the eternal word who from creation is always speaking. Already there at the start of creation, he is the angel of the Lord. And all encounter with Yahweh that we read of in the Hebrew Bible is encounter with God's desire in Jesus Christ to come and reconcile and redeem the world. All prophetic ministry, all speaking and hearing subsists in that one eternal word of God. Jesus, after all, says, before Abraham was, I am. He is the one, to use a very technical, dogmatic term, who is the verbum incarnandus, the word who is always going to be incarnate. Karl Barth captures this reality well when he states that there takes place in the prophecy of Jesus Christ, and I quote, the mediation and establishment of a specific knowledge, namely the knowledge whose subject and content is neither directly nor indirectly the person that knows, but is he, Christ himself, who also mediates and establishes it. He himself is the reconciliation of the world which he declares. As he declares this, and therefore himself, in the discharge of his prophetic office, he mediates and establishes knowledge of himself as he encounters us. Christ is the one in whom the whole history of Israel finds its origins. Christ is the one who we might say is the heir prophet, the one from whom all prophecy flows, the one who is prophecy's foundation and endpoint. His prophetic ministry is the very essence of the desire of God to encounter us and to speak to us, not only in words, but in who he himself is. If we need to know this desire for encounter and its importance as a basis of Christ's prophetic ministry, consider the very nativity of Jesus. Even while Mary is pregnant, there is an encounter of Jesus with John the Baptist. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the birth narratives themselves involve encounter at the heart of the whole situation. The shepherds, the magi. And again, just in case we didn't get some of the earlier suggestions, there's another gesture towards Moses because off they go to Egypt. But it is this, of course, it is, of course, the life of Jesus in which we see this primacy of prophetic counter with almost all of Jesus' ministry revolving around personal encounter with those he comes across, showing and shedding the light of truth upon people by what he says and by the presence of who he is. Of course, the Gospels themselves are very conscious of Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophet's expectations and of the ongoing prophetic ministry of Christ. Not only is this the case in relation to the stories of John the Baptist, but it's also clear that Jesus is himself seen as the great anticipated prophet, encounter with whom is transformative. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free 
to declare the year of the Lord's favor. But for us, for us who live now after the earthly ministry of Christ, for us it is most crucial that this prophetic ministry continues in the resurrection encounters that Jesus has with those around him. In these encounters, as the supreme and perfect living one, whom death could not destroy or hold down, he continues to speak from the future which he anticipates for us to teach us and to demonstrate what it means for him to be the eternal word. Were Christ not the foundation and end of the prophets, the source of them and their telos, then Christ would just be another one in a list of many great teachers and speakers, a great line of those reaching right back who had encountered God. The distinction between Jesus Christ and every other prophet is that he is the basis and end of their prophecy. He is the one who was before Abraham, the one who is the word who was with God and was God in the beginning, the one who, as the word, brought all that is into being, and the one who in his resurrection continues to speak to us today, to us within the life of the church, to us within creation, with the message of redeeming grace and the transformation that awaits all creation. Christ is the living one, the supreme and glorious living one, who seated at the Father's right hand awaits his return to creation. And it is because he is alive that we, we as evangelicals can say that we encounter him, that we know him, that we have a relationship with him because in the power of his resurrection, in his supremely alive resurrection life, he speaks and he encounters us. This speaking continues to be Christ's prophetic office through the living words of Scripture and the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. For the Word of God is alive and active. And that word, that word has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ, who we hear by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so thirdly and briefly, we continue to encounter the living Lord's prophetic ministry through the Holy Spirit he sends. It's absolutely clear that the life of Christ and the life of the Spirit are unified and one. There is a dogmatic principle that says all external acts of the the Holy Trinity are indivisible in themselves. But that dogmatic principle arises from the reading of Scripture. The eternal Word of God is incarnate of the Holy Spirit. Think even of the story of Simeon and Anna that comes straight afterwards. Here it is as a completion of the prophetic tradition, and what happens, the Holy Spirit rests upon Simeon. The story of John the Baptist as the seeming completion of the prophetic ministry of Israel is a story that involves principally Jesus as the successor, and what's the fundamental difference? John will baptize with water, but Jesus 
He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' own baptism, it is the Spirit that descends upon him and propels him into the wilderness for 40 days, reminiscent of the 40 years of wilderness with Moses. And it is the Spirit's descent that is the catalyst for his public ministry. Again, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then what happens in the resurrection, according to John? Jesus breathes that same Spirit onto the disciples. In the farewell discourses in John's Gospel, Jesus makes plain both the promise of the ongoing presence of the Spirit and the perfect alignment of the ministry and teaching of the Spirit with that of Christ. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said. Or else later, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Word and the Spirit can never be separated one from the other. I've come to think that the litmus test, to test whether the Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God, is that when the Holy Spirit is present, Jesus Christ becomes more present. If the Spirit is present to us, we become more like Christ. The Spirit has a personality, and it's the personality of the man Jesus of Nazareth that we read about in the accounts of the Gospels. Within the church, we receive the Spirit who continues to enable us to encounter that living Word, to encounter Jesus Christ as He speaks prophetically to us with words of conviction, of teaching, and of assurance. The Spirit is the aliveness of God to us in this and in every age, the constant aliveness of the supremely living God who speaks the ever-living words of Jesus Christ, who has the words of eternal life in every situation, in every contingency, in every context, in every difference. It's not that the context determines the content. It's that the Spirit speaks the content to the context. P.T. Forsyth, an Aberdeen graduate, reminds us that the church's life, enlivened by the Spirit, is grounded on the living resurrection of Jesus, an eternal and a final act of God, which makes all things new. Let me quote. The faith of the church being an act of life, self-committal and worship is more is more than a posthumous impression left by Jesus. Had it not been more, like all impressions, it would have worn off. But as an act, it answered an act, an eternal act, which gave it its own depth and permanency. It is new life a new creation. The prophetic office of Jesus is not just a set of tablets 
It's not just a set of law, but it is the office that the Spirit fulfills by writing those words upon our hearts, transforming us through the encounter that we can have with the living and resurrected Lord Jesus in the everydayness and ordinariness of our lives, speaking to us His words of grace through the words of Scripture. This ever-living Christ speaks, and He speaks deep into the hearts of each and every one of us, desiring that encounter, desiring to speak to all creation the words of love and grace and truth, the word which is known and complete in Jesus Christ, and the word which reigns from a future from which it breaks in with its kingdom into our here and now. And this, this it seems to me is the basis of our apostolicity. Not some impression left by Jesus, but his living and sovereign reign over us as those who continue like the first apostles to hear ever more from him in his life. And so fourthly, finally, and very briefly, just one minute before your dean gets anxious. <laughs> Apostolicity isn't just something that we live from in that causative past sense, in the Marty McFly and Doc sense of back to the future. Apostolicity is something we live into. Because Jesus Christ sends us the Spirit as an anticipation of the desired full redemption of all creation. We herald what will be from what he has taught us and made known to us now as he reaches to us from the future where he already is in that place where all things will be made new. Our calling subsists in his. As a foretaste of what I want to say tomorrow, um, and if it's okay in these hallowed halls to even speak his name without being struck by lightning, John Calvin <laughs> reminds us that Christ is a herald and witness whose work does not terminate in himself, but through his spirit has a telos and an end point, which is his people, the church. Christ is a prophet and a herald, I quote, not in the common way, for he is distinguished from other teachers with a similar office. He received anointing, not only for himself that he might carry out the office of teaching, but, he, but for the whole body that the power of the Spirit might be present in the continuation of the preaching of the gospel. To be apostolic is not to hearken to a past. It isn't to think that we're apostles who can change things in the present. It is instead to be encountered by the everlasting prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ who speaks to us from his future and who tells us to proclaim to a broken and fallen world his kingdom which has no end, the kingdom of the supremely living and holy God of unending love. Amen.